Mac Power Users, episode 547, Of a Certain Age with Jim Metzendorf. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, joined by my pal and yours, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How's it going, Stephen? It's good, David. It is It is good. I have to say that our guest today really has me on, on my toes. Yeah. Which we'll get into okay. reasons, but like, it's kind of like when you show up at work and like the boss's boss is there, like, and you feel like you can't goof off or do anything. I'm going to be on my, my best behavior is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I just, well, why don't we just welcome to the show, Jim Metzendorf. Jim, nice to have you on the Mac Power Users. Summer of fun. Wait, no, that's the wrong <laughs> Oh, so, wrong show. Yeah, hey, it was yeah. so great hanging out with you guys last month at Dub Dub in San Jose. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wait, sorry, wrong universe. Either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So for those who, who may not know, I, I need to give a little backstory to our relationship with Jim. A lot of people probably know Jim. He's part of the sort of Apple audio community online. But when I came on the show now, what, a year and a half ago, I took over the editing. That was kind of one of the one of my uh, sticking points. Today was like I'll do it, but I went I went the edit, and I edited it for quite a long time. And over time, needed to hand it off to somebody else. And uh, Jim is that somebody else. We'll get into this, but Jim edits a lot of podcasts, including a lot on Relay FM. And I'll tell you honestly, we didn't get a single comment the week you took over because you are you're a better editor than I am. First of all. But it was so seamless, and you're so good to work with, and that's all great. But you're also like this big Mac nerd, so we're going to get into that today. So that's that's when I say I'm on my toes. So like I take notes during the show of like maybe places where we talk over each other or we need to fix something. And now Jim's just here. He hears all that anyways because he edits the show. But now he's going to hear them in real time. Just how bad we are at this sometimes. <laughs> yeah jim is the all hearing ear of the relay network mm-hmm. and i uh i was telling joking with him earlier because when we record the show and i make a mistake i can't help myself i say sorry jim every time and we <laughs> write it down so i was telling him, there's probably a super cut of me saying sorry jim like 15 minutes long <laughs> if you put it all together but the other thing that's weird is jim hears all our shows before they get released so sometimes jim will text me about something that happened on focus and say, well, how's that going? You know, mm-hmm. and I'll be like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, Jim is a, a pro audio, uh, engineer and a Mac nerd, we're going to talk about audio workflows and video workflows today. Uh, Jim also has some other things that he does a lot. Um, he's got a small business and we're going to talk about that. And he's a musician and, we, uh, Jim and I got on the phone yesterday and we kind of worked out all of our jazz talk. So we knew cause Steven is going to go crazy if I spend the whole episode talking about it, but, but, uh, Jim uses apps and technology for some of his music too. So we got a lot to cover today, Jim. Are you ready? Are you strapped in for this? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Well, give us a little background, Jim. How did you get all this knowledge and, and get to where you are right now? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess the first thing to say is I'm a person of a certain age. I'm 45 to be exact. So wait, wait, I, wait, that person of a certain age at 45. <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. No, I, I used to catch myself doing that. I'm not that old. Why, why are we doing this to ourselves, Jim? You're good. It works for some of us. 
<laughs> yeah. Just remember what Indiana Jones says, though. It's not the years. It's the mileage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I say I'm 45 because I have been using the Mac for an awful long time now at this point. I got my first machine in 1994. It was a Quadra 840 AV. I'll try to go through the the life history of Jim as quickly as I can so we can get to the the stuff that's of use to uh, the listeners, hopefully. But I was exposed to audio and video and photography from birth, more or less. Uh, my dad was a professional photographer, and he was also the recording engineer for a regional symphony where I grew up uh, here in Ohio. And so really at a, at a young age, I would go with him to concerts. And by the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I was helping him wrap microphone cables and kind of learning some of the very, very basics of audio through, through osmosis of spending time with him while he was doing his thing. And then, like I said, he was a photographer. By the time I got into high school, I had an opportunity to start taking pictures for the high school yearbook. And that was a lot of fun, but it was especially fun because we had a dark room at home. So I was able to process and develop my own black and white film, make prints at home. So I got into into that aspect of things at a, at a pretty young age as well. So all of these things kind of came to a head when I went to college and I actually decided to major in music. Like David said, I'm a musician. Saxophone is my primary instrument. I also play clarinet. So I studied music in college and, uh, I had been into jazz for, uh, for quite a number of years at that point and, and also classical music. But, being a saxophonist, there isn't a whole lot of classical music uh, in the traditional repertoire that involves the saxophone. Um, there is plenty of good classical saxophone music out there. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but when you're talking Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, Bach, saxophone didn't even exist when those guys were writing music. I think we so, should put a link in the show notes for Concertina de Camera. Absolutely. Just to make Stephen crazy. Yes. You want some good classical sax. That, that's it, man. <laughs> yes, the, the full French classical sax experience. So the classical, or I guess I should say orchestral music that spoke to me the most was actually film and TV music. Growing up, I was a huge Star Wars and Star Trek fan. So I learned about John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith at a real young age, and that stuff just hit me like lightning, you know, not only when I was a kid, but then as I got older, it was kind of like, well, how did they, how did they write that music? How did they record that? What's the process to incorporate this music into film? And how do they do sound effects? Like Ben Burt did sound effects for Star Wars and so on and so forth. So that's all what got me hooked. And then Fast forward again, I'm trying to make this short as short as possible, but I think it sets the stage for why I'm so obsessed with all of this stuff, especially in including the Mac. So in the late 90s, I discovered ZDTV. 
which later became Tech TV, which is what a lot of people know it as, which was a TV network for about computing. And Leo Laporte had a bunch of shows. And then ultimately, Leo was one of the earlier podcasters. And so I started listening to his shows like Twit and MacBreak Weekly. And then my obsession with those ended up getting me interested in it enough and landing me in a position where I started editing podcasts. I should also mention that I, I worked in the audio industry full-time. At that point, I'd worked for Avid Technology, which, was, uh, which is the maker of Pro Tools, and they're also known for Media Composer, which is the preeminent video editing platform for film and TV in Hollywood. And I was there for seven and a half years. And that was, that was a great experience because there were just so many unbelievably smart people working at that company. It was just, it was amazing. And then you had the immersion into the tools, which kind of led to your expertise you have now. <laughs> expertise is a, is a word that I would use uh, very, very loosely with me. You know, think of anything I say on the episode here is, not necessarily from an area of expertise, but a cautionary tale of all the myriad things that I've done wrong over the years, <laughs> but uh, am trying to get better at as I go. I think you undersell yourself, Jim. I think you've got some significant talent with, I just can't get over how fast and how good you edit the show. So I, I, I'm seeing Thanks, the other man. side of it. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Well, uh, with, this is Mac Power Users, so we and we have a lot to cover today, like I said earlier, but... Uh, we can't get started without knowing, you know, what's your gear? What Apple stuff are you driving over there? Yeah. And I have to admit, guys, like, I love the gear. I love the gear. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm a, Well, I'm a little bit ashamed to say it, but I do love the gear. My primary Mac is a 15-inch MacBook Pro uh, 2018 model. And it's a pretty loaded up configuration with 32 gigs of RAM, one terabyte, SSD. Uh, I have the Vega 20 graphics, which for that model were the high end was the high end graphics option. So that's my my primary Mac. I do have a secondary system that I can use for offloading different tasks. It's a 2008 Mac Pro, and it still works. It still does the job. What it doesn't do though is it doesn't run all of the current versions of some of the software that I use. So it's stuck on El Capitan, and I really can't go any further forward than that with it. So it's, it's really kind of the emergency backup machine for me for the most part. So you got a machine in your house, and I'm sure there's listeners that have the same thing, that it's older, doesn't have the latest software updates on it. What kind of jobs can it do for you? Is it, is it just an emergency backup for you, or is there like background tasks and things you can make it work for you? That's a good question and, and a good comment because there's actually a lot more that still could be done with it that I generally don't do. But typically, if if I'm on my main machine and I'm just pounding away on something that's resource intensive, what I can do with, with the old system is I can offload some like noise reduction processes you know batch batch processes for for audio yeah i just recently had an email from a listener asking about this question he had a um a laptop they'd given his kids and the kids had wrecked it and the screen was busted 
but the computer ran and he's like, it's $800 replace the screen. What should I do? And I said, just turn it into a Mac mini headless, you know, mm-hmm. get yeah. some virtualization software. You can run your Hazel rules, your, your Apple mail rules and basically stick it in a corner. And he wrote back like a month later saying that that's working really good. I, I do think that when you have a machine that, that is older, you may have more use for it than you think. Yes, that is so true. So shame on me actually for not utilizing it to its, its potential. Yeah. Shame, Jim. Shame, yep. shame. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you find a system that old uh, in comparison to the MacBook Pro? You know, if you had the same sort of batch process with an audio file, is a 2008 Mac Pro still you know, worth its weight? I've done some, some tests in the past where I kind of benchmarked the two machines. The, the Mac Pro is about 30%, 40% slower. Okay. But for audio production work, it still will do everything I need to do. It will just do it more slowly. Now, when it comes to video editing... That's a little bit of a different story. It's not very happy as a 4K video editing rig. That's the Mac story. Okay. My iPhone is a 10s Max, so I didn't upgrade last year. I will upgrade most likely when iPhone 12 comes out. For me, I, and I think for a lot of people, it's an omnipresent device in my life. It is rarely more than six feet away from me. I really don't know what to say specifically about iPhone other than that. It's just, it's always there and it's always, it's always the in-hand gateway into everything that I do, both in personal and and professional life. But, you know, I've noticed a trend with our guests lately. And for years, everybody would say, I mean, you're on Mac Power users, obviously you're a nerd. They would always say, yeah, I've got the latest iPhone. And that is not common anymore. I mean, there are certainly there are people who get the the new iPhone every year, but it feels to me almost like the iPhone has now got to a point where even power users aren't just guaranteed to upgrade every year. Yeah. There's only been two models that I've skipped since the original iPhone. And the iPhone 11 series was one of them. The other one that I skipped was the 5S which the 5S was actually, in, in hindsight, was actually a killer phone. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. When, when, the, when the 11 came out, I just didn't feel, yeah, I could have upgraded, but I didn't really need to. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with the 12. I'll, that'll be two years at that point, so I'll probably go ahead and get one. Hopefully it's great. I'm sure it will have some, some cool advancements in the camera for stills and videos. I think you will get one, Jim. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just sure making a prediction. I need it for my work. It's for my work, yeah, you guys. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's it's a harder thing to justify as time goes on because a all the iPhones are so good now. It's hard to those big jumps we used to see. They're harder and harder to see. And when it, it's going to cost you over a thousand dollars because the the prices keep going up, that. It's also just a harder thing to justify every year. And yeah, they hold their value and you can sell them off or give them to a family member or something. But it's we're way past the days where a new iPhone every year was only going to cost you a few hundred dollars. And we're also way past the days where every year was a monumental leap over the prior year. Mm-hmm. Although lately the camera 
has been monumental leaping. I, I'm very curious to see if it, they can do that again this year. All right. So you got the iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Having said all of that about, oh, well, wait on the iPhone. I recently upgraded my iPad. Okay. I had a, a 10 and a half inch iPad Pro and I moved up to the big boy, fourth generation, 12.9 inch with the magic keyboard and all the fixins. And I have to say, this thing is a monster and I love it. It's so great. How did you decide on the 12.9 versus the 11 inch? So there was a point in the first generation iPad Pros where I actually ended up through, I forget what circumstances, but ended up having both models. I had the small 9.7 and the first gen 12.9. I had those both for, I don't know, like six months or something. And I kind of whittled down to the 9.7. And then when it was time to to move up from there, I went to the 10.5. But I always kind of missed that big screen. And one of the, the main catalysts for me... Can, wait, can I interrupt? Yeah, please. Sh- sheet music, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I got the same problem. I put sheet music on an 11-inch iPad. I can't read it. Yeah. We're so old, David. We're so old. Here we go again. Yeah, <laughs> of a certain age. But uh, yeah, so PDF sheet music was was one of the big things. And the other the other deal for me, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, was I do a lot of photo editing on iPad. And I was kind of wondering to myself what it would be like to to do that on the larger screen. So for this generation, I I decided to go big. Now, that isn't to say that I might not when it comes time to upgrade this one in three years or whenever I do it, I might not go, you know, I might go back to a small one. I might stay big. It just kind of depends on how this goes with, uh, with the big boy. Well, I mean, they're, they're so good and they last so long. It's, it's almost like in three years you could buy the smaller one and still have the working big one. You know, you yeah. don't have to uh, replace it, but yeah. I, so are you having any, how long have you had the large iPad? It's really been, I don't know, like three weeks. So it's, oh, okay. it's new, new honeymoon still. Honeymoon. Yes. Yes. All right. So uh, you haven't had second thoughts yet about the size. The only, the only issue that I've had is, you know, you're in bed, we're trying to watch fail army and it's a little bit unwieldy, but I would say, no, I really haven't had second thoughts at this point. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you could break your nose if you dropped it on your face with the uh, big one. Did you end up with a keyboard for the iPad? Yeah. So I got the, uh, the magic keyboard which has the integrated trackpad. Mm-hmm. So I got that. And I also got the the folio cover for it. So when I don't need the keyboard and I just kind of want to handhold or prop it up, then I can switch it out. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that as well. And, and also, if I'm just handholding the iPad, I like to have the folio on it because it's a little bit more grippy mm-hmm. than just the bare naked iPad. Oh man, I'm all about the naked iPad. It's it's mainly in that, but that's one of the nice things about that new keyboard is it's so easy to pop it in and out. Yeah. I always liked the initial Apple keyboards, the Folio keyboards. I thought those were they were good, but I'll tell you with this with the Magic keyboard, they nailed it. They really they really perfected what that experience I think was always meant to be. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's heavy, but man, it's nice. 
Now, also, we're going through a pandemic. I, you're working from home mainly, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the, I think the one downside of the big one is if you're someone who goes out on the road a lot, um, you'll feel that size when you put it in your bag and carry it around. But that's the only really concession. In general, you know, more screen space is, is just a bonus. Did you get the cellular radio too or, or just Wi-Fi? Yeah, of course, because why not have Verizon give me a free loan? And uh, <laughs> that I pay back at zero interest, you know, over the course of 24 months. I mean, yeah. you know, who doesn't want another $50, you know, or whatever it was, you know, added to their phone bill every month? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I like to save money, too. But I have to tell you, having an iPad that is just always connected to the Internet, they're, you know, I think it's an extra $10 a month on mine. So I don't like to think about it in terms of $120 a year. That's not healthy for me. But $10 a month, man, it feels good when I go out and I just turn it on and I'm on the internet. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Stephen, what do you do with your iPads? Do you do the Wi-Fi only or do you do the cellular too? No, on my 11-inch iPad Pro, I've got the cellular and it's just on our family AT&T plan. So it just comes out of the bucket, at, you know, whatever it is, five or 10 bucks a month. Yeah. I, I used to do the thing where my phone would be on one carrier and the iPad would be on the other, but I feel like we're basically past those days like generally at&t which again just who i use is everywhere i need it to be so i don't really worry about uh, that sort of redundancy uh, i do think though the keyboard may be the thing that gets me to try the big one again at some point because the the magic keyboard on the 11 it's good and it's totally serviceable but i could i could stand a little more room so i may end up back on the big one you know in a future I, vision I, I think you should do it this month, Stephen. You no. should just sell the 11 no. and get the 12. Maybe you could go back to the guy you sold your 12 to yeah. and say, hey, that's really big. You want to trade? Yeah, yeah. my brother has it. Um, <laughs> so maybe I just talk him into getting a magic keyboard and then I could try it. There you go. <laughs> so on the 11-inch, on the did they squeeze down the spacing between the keys or is the surface area of the keys smaller? The the keys are a little smaller, and a bunch of them are half width around the edges. Oh, okay, okay, which is annoying. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by One Password. We all have a ton of online accounts, social media, banking, everything importance in between, and one thing that's really hard to keep up with is when one of those passwords may have become breached. Not in the sense that you were using uh, a bad password necessarily, but you know, sites get broken into, passwords get stolen. And for a long time, 1Password has had a feature called Watchtower, which you could go into and you could see, okay, which of my passwords are compromised, which ones are weak, which ones I've reused. Uh, but starting in early July, 1Password got this really cool feature, uh, Watchtower notifications. So now if, if you turn it on, it's optional. You can be alerted by one password when a password of yours or multiple passwords have been dumped in one of these big security breaches. And so you can go in there and you can see what has been affected and go in there and change it. So you still can go through and take a tour of Watchtower on your own. But I turned this on the moment I saw it was available because I want to be informed if I've got a password out there that's bad so I can go in and replace it before anything bad happens. A really great feature for 1Password. 
You can use one password with your family or with coworkers. They've got great plans for that. I use both. My wife and I have a family account together. And then Mike and some people at Relay, we share a company one. It's great. I can manage who has access to what. And it's all available uh, to everybody, wherever they are, because one password runs on basically anything you can think of. So head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more and to sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you do, you'll get 20% off. Once again, that's onepassword.com slash MPU. Our thanks to One Password for their support of the show. All right, Stephen, does it feel weird recording that with Jim listening live? Mm. A little weird, right? A little, a little pressure. <laughs> you did a great job, Stephen. Thank no you. edits. No edits. All right, Jim. So one of the things you do, the way you pay for your shoes, is this the uh, these audio edits you do. And I thought it'd be fun to talk to the listeners about how you do it, some of the gear you use, and maybe even let's talk a little, you know, prosumer or just consumer uh, audio gear people will be interested in our last feedback episode we kind of got into the topic of how do you record a family member and and i was thinking man jim messendorf would have a lot better idea about how to do this so (laughs) why don't we start with what you're using to get your work done sure well my my main setup really just comes down to a good sounding audio interface that's clean and doesn't have you know any any noise issues or anything like that and then a good pair of headphones that and a decent microphone that's the basics of what somebody needs to capture good audio all right so taking the first piece audio interface kind of explain what that does and why there are good and bad ones it is what allows you to connect a microphone or other audio sources to your computer and so those are typically either USB-based or Thunderbolt-based. The ones that I happen to use are Thunderbolt-based uh, from a company called Universal Audio. And we'll maybe talk later about what's special and particular about those and why I like those so much. Basically, this is what you connect your microphone to. If you don't have a USB-based microphone that just you know plugs directly into your Mac, and they also will will give you a headphone output. You're getting that good microphone preamp, so you're capturing a good clean signal going in, and you're getting a good headphone output. So what you're hearing is a more accurate representation of whatever it is that's been captured. All right. And what are um, what are some... And, okay, so taking the next piece of it uh, you covered was... Uh, well, we got the mics and the headphones. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. But the um, if you're going to have the audio interface, then you're going to have a mic going into it. What mics are you using and you know, kind of where do you see that technology right now? Sure. I've got a couple different ones that I use. The one that I'm talking to you guys now through is a Shure SM7B, which is one of their broadcast-oriented mics. I also have a, a Neumann TLM-103, which I, you know, typically will use that for recording saxophone or if I'm doing some sort of voiceover that requires a little bit different character than what the shore provides, I'll kind of go with that. But there are a lot more affordable options than, than those. The, the shore isn't a terribly expensive mic, but it's not a terribly inexpensive 
mic either. There's also the Shure Beta 87A, and it sounds great. There's even something as simple as uh, the Shure SM57 or the SM58. They're only 100 bucks each uh, for the 57 or the 58. And the difference between the 57 and the 58 is the, the windscreen that's on them. The, the 58 is oriented towards vocal recording, so it has more of a windscreen-type grill that you can potentially use without a pop filter. The 57 is, is intended for instruments. You can use it for spoken word, but you probably need to get a pop filter to, to go along with it. There's also another popular microphone that a lot of people are using is the Neumann KMS-105. Yep. Yeah, it's a beautiful microphone. It was originally designed as a handheld microphone for vocals in, in live environments, but it works great for spoken word recordings in the studio. And it sounds good on instruments too. So it's really it's really versatile and it's it's actually the least uh least expensive Neumann microphone. A couple other just really fast common mics that you'll you'll hear people talk about and use in the broadcast world and in the podcast sphere as well are the the Heil PR40. There's also the Electro Voice RE20. So those are some good ones. And all these microphones sound a little bit different from one another. They're all very good mics, but they have a little bit of a different flavor or character. So if you really want to start getting into this a little bit more deeply is if you have the opportunity to try out a microphone before you buy it, or if you are able to to buy it from a place that that has a reasonable return policy and will let you, you know, buy it, make sure you're happy with it, and if not, return it for something else, then you can find what suits your voice the best. Yeah, and something I had to learn kind of the hard way is when you're picking a mic, you also kind of have to pick the um, the sound device to match it. You know, certain mics require more. Like early in my podcast career, um, a mutual friend of ours, Victor Kahiao, sold me his old Heil mic. But the problem was I didn't have a preamp strong enough to drive it, so it never worked for me. And you really have to kind of get into the weeds a little bit on that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really true. There are, uh, just to kind of address that, that's a, that's a great point. There's really three major types of microphone technology, dynamic, condenser, and ribbon. In spoken word, we're really dealing with either dynamic or condenser microphones. The dynamic mics are generally much more gain hungry. So in other words, they need a lot more power from the microphone preamp to drive them and make them sound good. They're not, another way of saying it is just simply, they're not as loud. They don't have as hot of an output as a condenser microphone will. So yeah, that uh, that can be an issue with uh, with the PR40 and even even the SM7B that I'm using is a really gain hungry mic. So even on my setup, I've got the gain really pretty cranked to get a usable level. So uh, that's definitely something to be aware of. And that also explains the Phantom Power button as well, correct? Yes, or, exactly. Because yeah. uh, condenser microphones will use. Uh, phantom power, which is is sending juice uh, to the capsule within the microphone in order for it to to function. 
All right. So, so somebody listening, I want to back up just a little bit. Um, yeah. Somebody listening doesn't want to buy a $500 Heil mic, you know, they, um, but wants to improve the audio capture from their Mac. What's a good basic setup you'd recommend? I would say a really good starting point would be one of the Focusrite Scarlet audio interfaces. They're USB-based. They have quite a few different models in their range, but you can get away with getting one that just has one or two inputs. You get one of those and get yourself a Shure SM58. So you're looking at 100 bucks for the mic, 150 bucks for the most basic Focusrite interface, and you're in business. Yeah. With a system that's modular in the sense that you have a standalone microphone, you have a, a dedicated audio interface, and you can grow it from that point. So you could you could go the route of upgrading your audio interface down the road or upgrading the microphone or using those for more inputs if you're gonna if you're gonna have multiple uh, people on a show that you're recording at home or if you're out on location or or somewhere and just to put a point on that i so because of the pandemic i had to move my studio and now it's in the part of the house that has a lot more traffic so a lot of times we record mac power users and some of my other podcasts i do it in my daughter's bedroom where i call that studio b i'm holding up air quotes right so we have an extra imac we have a boom stand we have a desk it's fine and i wrote jim saying i need a second device because i didn't want to be dragging my my um my pre to upstairs and downstairs every time i need to record a show he told me to buy this focus right i've been using it now for two months nobody has ever noticed i haven't heard a single thing from a listener saying that you know the audio sounds different yeah they're they're really good for the money it's and, yeah one was like seven hundred dollars and one was one hundred dollars so right you know <laughs> exactly exactly it, it's audio equipment is a lot like other types of professional equipment where you get you get to that law of diminishing returns mm -hmm. where the amount of money that you spend increases significantly but the the tangible benefit really shrinks so what about headphones if you're recording a, a podcast or even music or something you need headphones to be able to monitor to listen to what's going on you want something closed back and that makes a good seal so you don't get bleed right so you don't get headphone sound back on your microphone track which is a real pain to clean up even if it is possible to clean up sometimes it's not uh do you have some uh, let's, let's hear your favorites and then maybe a recommendation for someone looking to get started yeah you know everything that you just said really hits the nail on the head headphone bleed is is going to be your enemy and so you do want to use those those closed style headphones while you're recording. Um, the ones that I like the most are the Neumann NDH-20s. I got those earlier this year, and I've been just over the moon happy with those. I also am a huge fan of the Audio-Technica ATH-M50Xs. So we'll have, we'll have links to all of these in the show notes, hopefully. Those are a lot, a lot less expensive, but they, they sound very good. They give you a little bit of passive isolation, meaning they will decrease the ambient sound while you're wearing them to to a small extent, but they don't leak out that badly. 
when you're recording with them. There another really popular option. I think you have these, Steven. I don't know what, what David's using, but there's the Sony MDR 7506s. Yep, that's what I I've use. I've got a pair of those. Yep, yep, I have a pair of those. Um, oh my God, I've bought so many headphones over the years. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, there's also the Sennheiser HD 280s, which are really good for a podcast uh, recording as well. You guys don't want to hear my headphone story. It's just going to make you angry. Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> then we can then we can fix it. For for years, I, my headphones, my podcast headphones, were a pair of Shures that were in the speaker bag when I spoke at MacWorld like ten years ago. <laughs> and they, uh, but they had foam and they went over my ears and they covered my ears and they were giveaways. So I can't imagine they were very good. And the foam eventually disintegrated inside of them. So finally, about six months ago, on Stephen's recommendation, I bought a pair of the Audio Technicas, which were the lowest, the least expensive option he gave me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know that I can hear the difference that much. To tell you the truth, guys. <laughs> well, with, with spoken word and you know, and with editing, you want something that is relatively neutral. So something like Beats headphones, they may make a good seal, but they may be tuned to be a little more bass heavy and you're, yeah. you are confusing what you're actually hearing with what the headphone is doing to the sound. So like my 7506s, they're not good for music, right? They're, they're, they're neutral. They're flat. They're, they sound boring, but that's what I want when I'm working. When I'm going to go listen to music, I may use uh, something else. And so headphones, when you're doing audio production is really part of your toolkit, not necessarily something that you would, want to wear, you know, in the hammock listening to your favorite album. All right. What about software, Jim? I guess we'll start with with talking about the various things that that I happen to use, but then maybe pairing it back to what people could reasonably get away with. My primary editor and preferred editor for spoken word is Adobe Audition. I also edit several shows uh, every week in Logic Pro. And in fact, almost all of my shows at least pass through Logic Pro 10. So why, why is that? Okay, yeah. so yeah. In, in Logic Pro, there is a function that a Audition doesn't easily replicate called strip silence. And so what it does is it's based on a threshold that you specify. We'll go through an audio file and any signal within that recording that falls below a certain volume level, it just completely removes the sound. So the perfect example of this is when I go to edit this episode of, of Mac Power Users, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my file, I'm going to take David's, I'm going to take Stevens, and I'm going to run them through this strip silence function in Logic. So whenever one of us is not actively speaking, it's going to just remove all of the sound from our track. So when I'm here taking a sip out of my drink or fidgeting in my chair, you know, whatever, that's going to be removed for me automatically. And so when I do the edit, I'm not even going to have to deal with that. So in that regard, it's a killer feature and it's a huge time saver. Now, I like to use different programs on a regular basis because I'm just I'm such a nerd for all of this stuff I like to see how the different programs work 
but I also like to maintain my proficiency in them. So an example of a show that I actually will edit in Logic Pro is Dithering. So that's the the three times weekly show that uh, Ben Thompson and John Gruber do. And I edit that in Logic in part because we have a really fast turnaround time for that show. Um, basically, they record three nights a week. And then at about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, I get their files and I immediately start editing the program. It's only a 15-minute show, but I've got to turn it around as quickly as I can and I've got to get it down to that specific runtime. And because Ben is also good at editing audio and he also has a copy of Logic Pro, what I do is I send him my completed, you know, fully mastered MP3 file, you know, all of that good stuff. So if he's happy with my edit, he can just upload it and run it and we're good to go. But if he wants to make a different approach with the edit, I also send him my logic project and all of the source audio files so that he can make changes. He doesn't have audition, so it's easier for me to just cut in logic. Um, And similarly for me with with Pro Tools, having worked for Avid for so long, Pro Tools, you know, is still really ingrained into my my head and my fingertips. And I don't use it as often as I do Logic, but I do like to try to keep up to date on my my Pro Tools chops, I guess you could say. And then there's the world of plugins. Yes. My go-to plugins for spoken word, you know, for podcasts or if I'm doing audio books or, or whatever is RX from Isotope, I-Z-O-T-O-P-E. And this is a suite of effects and also a standalone application that will do things like noise reduction, de-essing, deplosive removal. So if you're Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, you're popping your peas, or if you have someone who is particularly sibilant with their S sounds, then those plugins are add-in little components that work along with Audition, Logic, Pro Tools, or any other digital audio workstation software to address those problems. Because I find that as I work for different clients on different shows, audio quality can vary drastically. Yeah. Can I just add an endorsement to this? Because you told me to buy this a couple of years ago and JF Brissett did as well, who does a lot of editing stuff for me. And uh, it's like 300 bucks, but if you sign up for their newsletter, they put it on sale. It seems like every month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and these tools are so powerful and anybody listening to the show can run them. You know, you just download the app, you insert the file and you, you put deplosive, you push a button and if somebody didn't have a pop filter, suddenly all those it, those plosives disappear out of the audio. It's it's truly like magic. And if anybody listening wants to have a tool set to improve their audio, I can't imagine a better way to spend your money. Apart from my main editing environment, that is just bar none. That's that's the Swiss Army knife for me. A couple other things that come in handy for me pretty regularly are Audio Hijack from Rogamiba. And they also have a program called Fission, which is a 
program that allows you to do editing on either mono or stereo audio files, but I use it typically for converting audio if needed from one format to another. Or if I need, or somebody gives me a video file and I just need to rip the audio from it, I can just open up the video file within Vision and then extract the audio as a WAV file or whatever format that I need to get out of it. Yeah, Rogue Amoeba is the, I mean, they're heroes when it comes to Mac processing on the Mac. Their tools are really just the best in the business. If I were going to identify a handful of companies that are third-party developers that are just so integral to making the Mac experience what it is and what the Mac, I don't know, this sounds like kind of frilly frou-frou, I guess, but you know, it kind of gives you like the warm fuzzies about mm-hmm. using the Mac. Yeah. Rogue Amoeba's 100% one of them. Like them and the the folks at Panic and, you know, BB Edit. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, that's where a lot of what makes the Mac the Mac shines from a third-party developer standpoint. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. No matter what it is you want to create, whether it's an online store, a portfolio, a blog, doesn't matter. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. And there's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help, and they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name right at Squarespace. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I know one of my big attractions to Apple products is a lot of times they just solve the problem for me. And I like services that are like that too. Squarespace is one of those. I had a bunch of issues trying to make websites and keep them running and making sure all the plugins worked. When I switched to Squarespace so many years ago, those problems just went away. Squarespace handles it all. I love having one vendor take care of the hosting, the platform, and all that for me. And Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. But you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the Mac power users. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. All right, Jim. So for someone who's not going to get themselves a copy of Adobe Audition and Logic Pro and Pro Tools all at once. Uh, what's some great tools to get started with audio edits and, and what are some, you know, basic tips and tricks to kind of get yourself rolling on this stuff? Well, have I got a deal for you? Okay. (laughs) I'm nervous now. No. Yeah. Yeah. So with the purchase of your Macintosh, you got a program called GarageBand. GarageBand is totally free and it's totally up to the task of doing basic audio editing 
and making a podcast. Sure. The, the original Mac Power Users episodes were edited in GarageBand. There are things about how GarageBand behaves that make it oriented much towards much more towards music production than doing like spoken word stuff. So in that sense, you can kind of feel a little bit hamstrung by it. But all of the tools are in there. And everything that you need to make it happen, you can do in there. There's also Audacity, which is a free program. It runs on Mac, Windows, Linux. And that's a good free basic editor. It Now, the way it works is a little bit more akin to the traditional digital audio workstation software. So in that regard, it's maybe not going to be quite as user-friendly as GarageBand, but that's a great option for folks. And then there's another program that, that isn't as well-known, which is, is very inexpensive in regard to how they do their licensing, and that's called Reaper. It's free to try and free to use under certain circumstances, but Reaper is another good another good choice. And did you guys know that Levelator lives? What? <laughs> I just blogged about it last week. What? The, uh, Levelator, the app that we all started podcasting with. It's an app you just drop an audio file in and it levels, it balances the levels. Go in the Mac App Store and search Levelator. Is it like the real Levelator? It's the real Levelator. Wow. That is cool. So there you go. One more. Get that. <laughs> There's one more. Yeah, so what it does, and, and you can do this in Logic, I do it in Audition, is it works to match the volume of your tracks. So if someone recorded more quietly than somebody else, it can sort that out for you. Yeah, if you've ever listened to a podcast that, and you had to keep your hand on the volume button because one of the hosts was really loud and mm-hmm. one was really quiet, they don't have Levelator. That really speaks to one of the, the tips or tricks that I would have for people is if you find yourself having to turn the volume up or down when you switch to your podcast compared to somebody else's or worse yet, if you have to turn the volume on your car stereo or your headphones at the gym up or down when somebody versus another person speaks in the show, it's really something you want to try to avoid. You need to get those levels between everyone as consistent as possible. So another thing along with that that type of, of software is if you're getting started in podcasting, you may want to incorporate chapter marks into your shows. So that's one thing that we do on Mac Power Users is you can go to specific points within the show for different topics. What's cool about chapter marks is you can also incorporate links. So if you want to highlight uh, a news article that you're talking about in that particular segment, you can link to it through a chapter mark. Um, this is something that I do all the time for the shows that I edit for. Well, they formerly were Mobile Nations. Now they're owned by Future Publishing, which is a much larger organization. But talking here about iMore Show, the Windows Central podcast, Android Central, as producer and editor of those shows, I do chapter markers. And so frequently we'll have links out to articles that they wrote that were relevant to what they're talking about on the show. 
for that purpose of creating an MP3 and creating the chapter markers, everybody should check out Forecast, which is uh, created by friend of the show, Marco Arment. So if you go to Marco, you could just do a you know Google search or just go to marco.org and then search for Forecast, F-O-R-E-C-A-S-T. He makes that tool available, which is really, really invaluable. Forecast also is an MP3 encoder. So I edit in Logic, I export a WAV file from Logic, and then I use Forecast to turn that into an MP3 for download. And it's all set up for multi-threading, so it can really light up a modern Mac and, and encode it very quickly. Do chapters, art, chapters, artwork, all that stuff. It has really become the final step in all of my production for all of my shows. Yep, same. Same. It's awesome. I love I love seeing all 12 threads, you know, light up on my MacBook Pro. Mm-hmm. So if someone's listening and want to get started with stuff, let's whether they're making a podcast or they've got a, a recording they just want to process. Um, let's can you just talk through the basic steps? Let's assume they're working in GarageBand and they've got some tools like Levelator and some of the other less expensive tools you've talked about. What would be kind of the workflow for that? Sure. You can use GarageBand not only is the recording environment, but also the the editing environment, of course. So you can connect your mic, connect your interface, and record straight into GarageBand. From there, there are built-in tools for signal processing, like EQ, for instance. If there are particular frequencies that you want to reduce or emphasize in a recording, you know, if it's really kind of muddy sounding, you may want to uh, reduce some of the lower frequencies, or if there's a lot of high end, you can roll some of some of that off. One thing I will say about EQ, though, is generally speaking, less is more, and you've got to be careful because you can end up doing more damage than good to audio if you go too extreme with, with EQ, especially if you're boosting things with EQ. That typically will add a lot of distortion to sound so more often than not. And I, and I won't say never because there are sometimes when I definitely do boost, but more often than not, I'm actually using EQ for the purposes of reducing a certain frequency. That's maybe just a tiny portion to answer your question of, of the workflow. Essentially what, what you need to think about when you, after you've recorded something, when you're editing, how is this going to be presented? So in other words, do you have to hit a specific runtime? How loose does the end product need to be, or can it, should it be, when it comes to pauses between thoughts? Or if you're someone like me who typically is a a horribly bad, um, uh, you know, how much of that do you want to remove from the recording? (laughs) I've always uh, joked, although joking about it has never made me any better at it, that I tend to have what I call Captain Kirk syndrome, which is when you talk very slowly and then speed up a lot. I thought you were just going to say you were going to Kobayashi Maru in the (laughs) podcast. Yeah, for me, you know, speaking can be a no-win scenario. That's for sure. Hi, Katie, by the way, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> Star Trek reference. That's a consideration. And, and so you need to think about how you want 
you're recording to to feel. And and that's part of being an editor for shows is me trying to get inside the head of the hosts and also the intent of the show to to try and present the best version of of those hosts and of that show that I can. I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense or not, but I just want to try to, as the editor, represent what the host, what the what the speakers are trying to communicate in the most effective way that's appropriate to the style of the show. So just like going back really quickly as as an example with with dithering with, with Ben and John, that show is 15 minutes exactly every episode. No episode is longer, no episode is shorter. And when they record, they'll typically give me 17 to 18 minutes of content, which means I've got to go in and find the three minutes that I can get rid of that still communicates their point. Hitting that exact runtime, it can be easier said than done. Now, granted, I do have you know, maybe a six or eight second buffer in there because there's a little sound effect of a stopwatch at the end, but it's really tight. Whereas a show like Reconcilable Differences is Merlin and John Syracuse basically busting each other's chops for like 90 minutes or two hours. And a show like that, I'm not doing too much in the way of um and of removal. I'm not worried about that so much as I am removing some points where they might accidentally talk over one another. But sometimes I leave those in because that's part of what makes that show like they're because they're busting each other's chops and kind of like air quotes arguing about a point. Sometimes the over talking stays in, but other times I've got to pull it apart because there's a joke in there that I want to make sure gets conveyed. How do you do that? Like uh, for someone who's never done it before, how do you remove the talk over? Is there a way to do that easily? In shows like these, we have each guest on their own audio track. Again, we'll use, we'll use this very show as, as the example. I'm going to have four tracks of audio to work with when I go to cut this together. I'm going to have a, a recording of our Skype conversation. That's all three of us on the same track. That's essentially my reference file. But then I have three separate tracks that are just just you, just Steven, and then just myself. And so what I can do is I have control to trim apart different pieces of audio and then place them wherever I need them to go. So if there's a big collision where two of us are talking at the same time or you know, three of us try to make an interjection, then I can separate those apart to the point where I could just completely eliminate two out of the three voices so as if there's no interruption whatsoever, or I can move these little bits of audio around so that the interruption or the the interjection is consecutive. And that's another thing that I might do is if someone is going along making a point and another person is going, right, mm mm-hmm. I might move those just a little bit so that 
when Steven says, yeah, that's right, or uh-huh, I might move that just a little bit so that it doesn't collide with what David is saying. And so I find the little spaces in between, those little cracks between sentences, between phrases, where that stuff will fit. Does that make any sense at all to you guys? Yeah, I'm just second guessing how many times you've had to move me doing that over the course of the show. <laughs> I'll send you some screenshots. Thank you. No, actually, don't. You guys don't. are actually, <laughs> you guys are, are very good about making way for people. All shows virtually will have crosstalk of, of some type, but. And I'm not just kissing up to you because you invited me on the show without me having to even beg to be on as a guest. (laughs) You're pros who understand that the best way to get a great conversation is to give way for other people to speak. I think it's because we both have edited, so we get it. (laughs) Nothing like having someone who's edited do your work for you because uh, we know how hard your job can be if we don't Mm -hmm. do a little prep. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, The IntraZone is a really interesting bi-weekly podcast with conversations and interviews on how tools like Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related products can work for you. You get to hear from an amazing array of guests working behind the scenes and out in the field. So you can see how SharePoint fits into a bunch of people's everyday work lives to easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. Each show covers a bunch of segments like news and announcements, a focus topic of the week, guest perspectives, FAQs, and upcoming events. I've really enjoyed listening to people at Microsoft talk about the tools and the utilities they build working hand-in-hand with customers to meet their needs. I find it really refreshing, that sort of transparency from a tech company. So go and listen to it now. Just search for The IntraZone wherever you get your podcast. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E, or click the link in the show notes to go check it out. Our thanks to The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of the show and Relay FM. All right, I know that... Uh, Jim, you do spend a lot of time in audio, but you mentioned earlier your background and a lot of passion for you uh, revolves around photography and video production. So what what does that look like for you? Yeah, exactly. I love photography. Um, A lot of weekends, at least, you know, one day out of the week, I like to go out and and make some pictures, whether it's just going on a walk or whatever in, in the park. In years past, I had a pretty active side hustle as as a freelance uh, photojournalist. So I was covering a lot of prep sports for weekly newspapers. So prep sports, you know, meaning like high school sports, football, basketball, stuff like that. But also doing what we call uh, soft news, you know, features. So if there's a arts and crafts festival happening in the community the newspaper will send out a, a photographer. And I've done you know, a small amount of what you would consider hard news as well. Back in 2008, I got to uh, photograph a couple of stops in the various presidential campaigns. That was a lot of fun to do as well. So photography as this passion, as a part-time professional 
has been something that's been with me for quite a quite a long time. And as far as video production goes, before I went full time as a freelancer, um, I had a contract position for a company in the automotive parts industry as a video producer. So I would make videos for them that were used internally, but also for trade show presentations where they were talking about different parts that they were making for cars and also uh, different processes that they were developing. So in other words, like the tooling to make the parts that they made for the cars. One thing that I wanted to to share with the two of you and, and listeners of the show is how much I love editing pictures using the iPad. Because to me, being able to have that screen right there in your hand, it just reminds me so much of how it used to feel when I would develop pictures and print photos in the darkroom. It's really a different experience. Yes, it truly is. That, that's not to say that I don't like editing photos on my Mac. It's perfectly good on the Mac, and I'm perfectly happy to do it. And in fact, there's programs like AstroPad Studio that make that experience really nice on the Mac. Or if you have a, a Wacom graphics tablet, you can get a different kind of experience on the Mac with it as well. But I can just sit there with my iPad, with the Apple Pencil. I really like Lightroom for for iPad, but I also enjoy using Pixelmator Photo. I think it's excellent. And there's also Affinity Photo, really also a good app. And I can sit there and I can make very small selective edits to the pictures I take. So in the traditional darkroom, there's a technique called there's techniques called burning and dodging, where if you want to make specific areas of a print lighter or darker, then you would use these little tools in the darkroom to make that happen. So as the light was shining through the enlarger onto the photo paper, you'd either have like a piece of cardboard with a little pinhole in it, and you would shine light a little bit extra on that portion of the print where you needed to some, something to be darker. Or if you were dodging and an area needed to be lighter, then you'd have like a little tool, you know, maybe like a piece of wire with a little piece of yeah, a little disc. Yeah. Yeah. A little disc. So you could prevent light from going over that part of the paper as much. Like I don't go deep, deep, deep into photo editing the way some people do. And I think that really comes from my background in uh, photojournalism, where you you have a very a very fine line of what's okay to do or not okay to do to an image in terms of manipulation. And I would assume some of that is also just that you grew up with film, and there's you know the tools for people who start with digital photography versus start with film. I mean, it's just like a completely different mindset about what an edit is. It really is. And I do actually own a couple film cameras. I, I really want to try to go out and, and shoot a couple rolls of film. And I need to just force myself to leave the Canon at home and just take the film camera with me and, uh, and go old school. 
man, I couldn't disagree more. I don't want to ever shoot another <laughs> roll of film in my life. I mean, oh, just the yeah. people don't yeah. know what it's like. You shoot a picture and you have no idea if it worked or not until like three weeks later. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. About it's it. brutal. It's brutal. And, you know, it's so funny you say that because, man, I look at I look at magazines from, you know, the 50s or 60s or, you know, any era pre-digital where they had beautiful portraits they had beautiful product photography or landscapes you know whatever the subject matter was it doesn't even matter but these crafts people were so skilled that they got it right without the immediacy of digital yeah they weren't able to check yeah they couldn't check and that's a skill that i really admire and uh and I respect, but I'm a, I'm such a heavy shooter when it comes to digital as well, where it would be hard for me to go out with just one roll of film and only have 36 exposures mm-hmm. for one day. That was one of the jokes when I made the photos field guide was like one day my wife was just sitting on the floor playing with the dog and I shot like 40 pictures. And when I was growing up, we usually had one roll of film for the whole year and then one roll of film for Christmas, you know? <laughs> so I basically right. shot a year's worth of film growing up on her just sitting playing with the doc. It's just, you know, it's crazy. How do you deal with that, Jim? If you shoot a lot, uh, clearly you don't want to keep, you know, if you shoot 30 pictures and you only really want one, how do you cycle that down? How do you whittle it down? Well, I'm a person who does keep everything. Oh no. Okay. I don't I don't delete any of those files. Wow. That's a lot of files, Jim. Yeah, it is. Oh, tell me about it. It's a lot of files, but overall storage is cheap. I just keep them. But just to give you kind of a typical scenario, what I will do is in Lightroom, you can import all of your photos and you can set star ratings for the images or you can flag different photos as a pick or a reject and so what i can do is if i have i'm going to use stupid high numbers because it's actually how stupidly high i shoot let's say i go out on a hike for a couple hours and i take 300 pictures i'm going to import those photos and then i'm going to go through and relatively quickly make the decisions on you know whether something is a total dog like i accidentally took a picture of the ground or of my hand or you know to something dumb that's going to be a reject immediately or if something's got potential if it's something that i might want to use or work with further then i'm going to apply a star rating to it and then after i've done that i can sort through and go okay the stuff that I really like, I'll maybe, in my initial pass, I'll maybe put it three stars. The stuff I'm less enthusiastic about, but still has maybe some potential, I'll put like one or two stars. And then I'll go through those and say, okay, well, do I like this more than I thought, or do I like it less than I thought? And if that's the case, if it's more, then I'll give it a four or five star rating. If it's less, then I'll downgrade it. Or I might even just go ahead and reject it completely, you know, after having it it having made the the first cut. Steven, Steven, <laughs> you have met your match with photos. <laughs> Put everything in albums. 
Yeah. So are you saying that Steven is a heavy shooter? Uh, we spent a lot of time talking last week about Steven's photo album affliction. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think that's probably your, um, your uh, photojournalism coming out in you. I, I remember reading an article once when the whole um, thing came out with Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, how some photojournalist just happened to have in his archive a picture of them together somewhere. And like suddenly this picture that was buried in his library became super valuable. And I think that's kind of drilled into you, right? When you get that job. Is that photo going to be valuable or useful someday? You know, probably not, but maybe. And the maybe is strong enough to go ahead and and keep it. Yeah. So once again, I am the outlier in this group. I, I love to cut and delete pictures if we have a family event. Maybe I'll shoot 40 pictures and maybe I'll keep five. You know, it's just that's I, I guess I'm a minimalist with this stuff, but I just I don't need to see like seven poses and, and I'm not doing photojournalism. So I'm I'm putting together a group of sparks and I'm taking their picture and I don't need to keep all five that I took of them standing there. So I just pick one. I just delete them. So kind of a different context, but I get it. You're a smart man. I just run around and you know, take stupid cliche pictures of leaves and put them on Instagram now. So yeah, that's nice. That's nice. What you're doing is yeah. fine. <laughs> well, I mean, everybody has a great life on Instagram, so why not? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by text expander. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast and let them know you heard about it at the Mac power users to get 20% off. Text expander removes the repetition out of work. So you can focus on what matters most. With Text Expander, you can say goodbye to repetitive text entries, spelling and messaging errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste, better than scripts and templates, definitely better than a list of phrases in a Microsoft Word document. Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your message. Now, Text Expander can be used on any platform with any app, basically anywhere you type. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time in Rome research. I'm trying it out for the audience, and I'm kind of impressed by its weird nerdiness. But everybody who uses Rome has these template lists where they've got web pages full of templates that they have to go block and copy every time they want to set something up. Not me. I just set it up in Text Expander. Now I type a couple keystrokes and all my templates get filled in. That's because Text Expander also works on the web. It's awesome. You got to try it. Take back your time and increase your productivity and show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Jim, this is the part Stephen is going to ask you to cut out later, but I want to keep it in. Just talk a little bit about your music and your technology. Um, we, we spoke briefly about sheet music on your iPad, and I think this is revolutionary. I know for me, it's huge to be able to sit at a piano or pull out my horn and have all of my sheet music right in front of me. How do you do it? It's so great as a practice tool and as a live performance tool. So just to keep it you know, really simple, which is, is how it actually works out for me. And in, in real life, which is I use on, on iPad, a program called four score F O R score. And what I do with that is I can load in PDF files through Dropbox or whatever cloud storage 
you know, source I happen to be using and load that into Fourscore and put all of my sheet music for, for a performance into order for the set list. So I can just call up each song. I, I play pretty frequently. I mean, other than, you know, the pandemic when no musicians are working live anymore, sadly. I play a lot with big bands where, you know, we'll play two and a half, three hours a night. And we've got all of these different charts that we're going to play. Instead of fumbling around a giant folder that has a hundred different tunes, trying to pull them all out. And I can just get out my iPad. I have PDFs of all of the, the charts. I put together the, the set lists. And with a tap on the iPad, I can just tap on the screen to switch pages. I can even program touch points into the PDF so that if I have a, a coda or a DS that uh, where the music jumps back, you know, a page or two pages, I can just tap on a certain point and it goes back exactly where I need to go. A lot of people also use Bluetooth foot pedals to, to switch pages. So there's it eliminates that need to have to, you know, actually tap the iPad to to go back or forward. And I also use, you know, things like there's uh, a tuner app I really like called iStroboSoft, which is is terrific. And I have a metronome a metronome app. Another thing I use a lot for uh, for practice for backing tracks is a is an app called iReal Pro. And so what that does is it lets you import or input the chord changes for a song, and it will generate these automatic accompaniments. So that you can play along. So if I want to practice a jazz tune like Autumn Leaves or All the Things You Are, I can program in the chord changes and it's going to play back this track that I can just practice the melody against or practice solos with. I like that you got a song with your two five ones in there. I like that's that. That's right. You got to practice your two five ones, David. Especially the minor two fives. Don't forget about the minor two fives. Yeah. So I would I would second four score. For some reason it was the very first app I ever bought to handle sheet music and it's been the one. The blue I don't have a Bluetooth pedal, but I've seen musicians using that. I uh, just curious, when you go to the bandstand with an iPad, do people look at you funny? They don't anymore. Um I have a bandmate that I play pretty often. We're on the same gigs that uh, he's gone full uh full out with uh with the iPad as well. Uh, and he uses a Bluetooth pedal. I haven't up to this point. I'm thinking about getting one. Maybe I will when, when gigs pick, pick back up again, but yeah, they're not that expensive, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're not. Yeah. They're like dirt cheap basically. Um, you know, and what they're very simple in, in what they do. But, uh, yeah, at first it was kind of like, Hey, what do you, what is that? Wow. That's weird. Wow. That's cool. And then three weeks later, like the person was like, that's weird. They show up with an iPad too, and uh, you know they've got the whole library for the band at their fingertip. It just, yeah, it's so much easier. And for people who don't do this, that that music is extremely valuable because those charts are very expensive. And like when I was in college in the college jazz band, some guy he was like the second trumpet player, and he went to his car, he put his book with all his music on top of the car, then he packed his trumpet. And then he got in his car and drove away with the book still on top of his car. Oh no. And we had we had no second <laughs> trumpet parts. He had to he had to like go in and it was like a big deal. So like having the iPad really helps. And um 
the other thing is just for the just briefly we've talked a lot about audio but in terms of your music what do you use for your audio tools yeah like i said at the top of the show i really enjoy film and television music and so one of the things that that i try to do is is write music of that type and to develop that more and more as i go so i have couple different software packages that kind of help me along that journey. Just really quickly, I'll mention Spitfire Audio. They make really exceptional orchestral uh, sample libraries that are very authentic sounding, very creative sounding too. They even have some free stuff that you can get that's not just orchestral instruments, but uh, instruments of all types. They sound unbelievably great. And when you combine what they make along with even just one or two live instruments, it really just brings the whole thing to life. There's a a company called Arturia that makes some really good software versions of vintage synths. And those are a lot of fun to play around with. Another really common one for for music production that uh, people utilize and I have as well is um, Contact from Native Instruments. And because I will never, ever get to ask this question on Mac Power Users, have you ever played with something like a Roland Aerophone? Yes. I haven't played the Aerophone specifically, but I have played the different Yamaha wind controllers along with the Akai Iwi. Yeah, so for listeners, that's like a digital saxophone. It's a MIDI saxophone, and it's an electronic instrument. So uh, I have one and I love it because I can practice scales at like nine at night and just put a pair of headphones on. And it's not the same experience, but it's close enough to get your fingers, you know, to get it under your fingers. It's very cool. It's like a guitar, but way less cool. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim, as we've been talking today, you do so much. I mean, you're editing for apparently every podcast on the internet. You're shooting, uh, you know, film, you're, you're writing music. In fact, I think we need you to score the next live event. Can we do that, Stephen? Whenever we can have a live MPU episode, let's have Jim score it for us. Okay. Um, (laughs) How do you, and, and and you've told us that you've gone out on your own. How do you manage all this? How do you get paid and keep track of all this stuff? Yeah. So I use, I use tools that are common that I think are probably common to a lot of other people who are kind of Mac centered, uh, small business folks or software developers. I use FreshBooks for invoicing. I use Dropbox all day, every day with clients. I do have Dropbox installed on my Macs. Unlike David, um, <laughs> I don't want my <laughs> and you know, really, like honestly, I've picked up a lot of tips and tricks on this side of things from listening to MPU over the years. I keep a lot of information in the Notes app. That's how I do my my task management. Is I just have bulleted lists for everything I need to get done on a given day, and I can just check them off yeah. in the Notes app. You know, if I'm providing show notes and and publishing and posting shows for clients, in addition to to editing chores, I also have the need for storing templates of code and and markdown and HTML. And so a lot of times I'll just use text edit documents that I just keep in plain text so that I can copy and paste that code to whatever it needs to go into, whether it's, you know, Libsyn for 
podcast editing, you know, for podcast hosting, I should say, or if I have to enter something into somebody's, you know, Squarespace or WordPress CMS. Yeah. Don't put that uh, stuff in notes. Don't put that stuff in notes. Yeah. Yeah. I learned like really fast. It took me about five seconds to figure out that that was not, that was not the good place for it. I'm also a big Google docs user with my clients. I maintain a, a Microsoft 365 subscription because sometimes I'll get ad copy from ad agencies that uh, are in Word file document. And yeah, I could open them up in, in pages. Um, yeah. pages. But for me, it's just easier to to open it up in the real thing. And I don't have to worry about formatting, getting messed up mm-hmm. in translation or anything. One thing that I also like to use a whole lot, I call it like my brain dump repository, is Microsoft OneNote. And for me, that really replaces what... Uh, Evernote. Thank you. Yeah, it replaces Evernote for me as kind of like the catch-all for, you know, things that I'm thinking about in terms of future projects or or whatever it is. We're going to have to dive deeper on OneNote on Mac Power Users. There are so many listeners that use it or want to get better at it that I feel like that one deserves attention. Maybe it'll be the very first Microsoft app that we really feature on the show. <laughs> I think it'd be worth it for you guys to check it out. No, it's, it's I've used it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I, like I've always said, I think it's the best thing in terms of software Microsoft's ever made. And that even goes back to the old pen computers that they made. That, I think that's where it kind of got its start. Yeah, but David, Word 5.1, that's uh, the GOAT word processor. Yeah, it always comes up, man. Or was it, it 5? Was it or in 5.1 was, I, I think, ruined it? I forget. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 5.1. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. So a friend of mine wrote on 512 pixels, like, nine years ago yeah it's funny the people that just tells you how much people use the app because people still get angry when you say five one mm-hmm. what about other stuff jim what are some of the other apps and services you use to kind of hold all this together yeah so a couple of my favorites i really like screens from adovia so there are times where i'm like downstairs on my ipad and there's files i want to start processing on my mac so that i can when it comes time to get on the computer, I can just start editing right away. So I can connect to my Mac through screens and do kind of my file prep work or anything else I need to access on my Mac. I can do it from the iPad, even if I'm not home. Uh, you can even do it from your phone. That's a really big help for me. I also really like kind of speaking again about Markdown and HTML. There's a really cool Safari extension that I use every single week called the Markdown Linker. And it's a free Safari extension that lets you take a link in Safari and automatically generate a Markdown code for that link. So I use that all the time for show notes for people. And uh, John Gruber has a utility in the deep bowels of Daring Fireball that lets you convert Markdown to HTML. I really only know just barely enough how to not break things or copy and paste. I use that all the time. We'll include that as a show note. I also really like uh, Luna Display, which is a combination hardware and software, a little, little dongle that you poke into your Mac through the mini display port or USB-C that lets you use an iPad as a second display for your Mac. I love using that. There's also, if you're a Catalina user, there's the sidecar feature, which uh, does essentially the same the same thing. 
last thing I guess I'll mention here is I'm a huge YouTube junkie. There are so many YouTube channels that I follow and watch. And sometimes I will need for both work reasons and just, you know, for my own personal archives, just so I have something in case I think it might get taken down someday. It's like a concert or something I really like. I'll use Downey, which is a, a program that lets you slurp down video from sites like YouTube and, and a lot of others. Uh, now, Jim, you told me you are a YouTube premium subscriber. Yes. And so that is, tell us about that a little bit. Really simply, YouTube premium really gives you two benefits. Number one is you don't have any ads. So it's it's an ad-free YouTube experience, which I find to be, I'm not an ad-averse person, but I'm a YouTube ad-averse person because I don't think YouTube provides a good ad experience for its watchers. So it takes that out of the equation, but it also provides access to, now they're trying to rebrand it as YouTube Music, which is basically Google's streaming music service. I'm really not nuts about their implementation of streaming music as YouTube Music, quote unquote, but uh, Google Play Music is a, is a really good, you know, very iTunes-like catalog for streaming music. I actually have an Apple Music subscription as well. But once in a while, I'll run, to, run into things that I can't find in Apple Music that I can find in the Google Play Music app. So I kind of have both of those to work with. Yeah, you, you inspired me after we talked about this in show prep. I went ahead and signed up for the free month of it just to try it out. And the additional feature it has is when I'm working on my iPad, because I, I watch a lot of YouTube video too, and a lot of it's just educational stuff where I don't necessarily need to see the video. Uh, and on, yeah. I, on iPad, you can swap, you can switch out of the YouTube app. And like I can be working on tasks in OmniFocus or just doing, you know, mindless work on my iPad and it'll be playing the audio in the background, but it exactly. does not do picture in picture. Like they, it's like, come on guys that you want $17 <laughs> a month, but you can't give me picture in picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's, there's hope and there's some workarounds with that. I, I had totally forgotten about background audio. I use that all the time. And it's something I just completely have taken for granted. Little tip though, related to pick and pick. If you are on the iOS 14 beta on an iPhone, or if you have any recent iOS, you know, iOS 13, 12, whatever on an iPad, if you use the YouTube website instead of the YouTube app, you can get pick and pick by using it through Safari. Yeah. All right, Jim. So where do people find you? You can check me out on Twitter. I don't post all that often, but I'm there if you want to say hello or ask me questions or whatever. Or say mean things about my my appearance here on the show at Jay Metzendorf. No, our listeners are nice. They love you. They They're are. They you. are the best listeners, just like last week's show title. I'm on Instagram, too. You can see my my nature pictures. You can see my leaves. Sometimes they're alive leaves. Sometimes they're dead leaves. It just depends. What What is that uh, name for Instagram? That's uh, Jay Metzendorf as well. My thanks again to Jim and our sponsors, 1Password, Smile, Squarespace, and Microsoft. See you next week.